Have you ever said one of these statements, I need a job, or I hate my job, my job is driving me crazy, or maybe you were on the other side of things, my employees are driving me crazy, you can't find a decent employee these days. Have you said these things? Work issues can drive us mad. How should we respond to difficulties that we encounter in the workplace? Well, this morning, we're going to think about these kinds of work issues together. Today's passage is also going to force us to think through some some challenging issues. A couple of weeks ago, we considered the Apostle Paul's directions to families. How should a husband uh, work with his wife? How should a wife work with her husband? How should parents work with children? How should children work with parents? And we saw that God brought order to those household relationships. Well, today's passage is actually the conclusion of that section of Scripture, because in the ancient world, often slaves were a part of a household. Now, obviously, we must be careful in applying this passage in our day, because slavery is no longer a part of culture, and we're thankful to God for that. In this passage, we see principles about how those who are in authority and those who who are under authority, should behave. And we will think about these principles together, particularly in the context of the workplace. We'll draw out a couple of guidelines for how employees should relate to their uh, uh, employers and how employers should relate to their employees. And then we'll take some time and we will think together about the issue of the Bible and slavery. As you consider what Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 says, in our day, it is this, serve Christ in your work. Serve Christ in your work. Paul gives directions to slaves and to masters, and his instructions guide us in how we ought to carry out employment. Paul's first principle, be a faithful employee. Be a faithful employee. In verse 22, it's significant that Paul addresses slaves as human beings. Now, in the ancient world, slaves were property. But here, Paul speaks to slaves as individuals. He he speaks to them not as something subhuman, but as a person. Now, that's important because it was not like that in the ancient world. Paul urges slaves to obey their earthly masters. It's important that we think about that. What Paul is saying to to these slaves is, you need to obey what your earthly masters say. But ultimately, we recognize that these masters are only earthly masters. You have a heavenly master. You, You ultimately answer to him. Paul says that slaves should obey their masters in everything. In other words, slaves should strive to be compliant and and to follow the instructions that they were given. Of course, this didn't require slaves to dishonor God by by doing something that a a master might command that was immoral. Uh, The slave's duty was always to honor God. And, And so our highest duty as a Christian is to honor God in what we do. So a slave shouldn't obey a master if the master commands something that was wicked or evil. Paul says, don't work only when you're being watched. Slaves should work the same when they're being observed by their masters and when they are not. 
Similarly, Paul says not to work as people pleasers, to only work hard when the master's eyes are on you so that you gain some benefit from that, Paul says, is nothing but hypocrisy. Instead, work should be motivated by this reality that the eyes of the Lord, they're on you and they're always on you. Instead of working with ulterior motives, Paul says their work should be carried out and performed wholeheartedly as if serving Christ himself with a certain fear or awe for the Lord. So in other other words, whatever task the slave was called upon to, to carry out or to perform, this task should be performed with devotion, with diligence, seeing this work as service to Christ himself. In verse 23, Paul reiterates this idea of serving Christ in all things. He says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something for the Lord. So don't think of yourself, he says to these slaves, as merely serving people or or serving your master. But think of the work that you're doing as serving God. Of course, this gives even menial tasks great significance all tasks, great purpose. For all work that isn't immoral becomes a way of honoring God and of worshiping him. In verse 24, Paul gives a reason for working in this way. He says to these slaves, the Lord will reward you. In other words, these slaves could know this, that God ultimately would reward them. Their earthly masters may not reward them. They may face hardship under their earthly masters, but they could count on this fact that one day in eternity, their faithful labor would be rewarded. God would. He would make things right. That's what Paul says. In verse 25, he reminds these slaves that the wrongdoer, and of course here he's, he's thinking of the cruel master. Well, he'll be paid back for his wrong. God will hold a cruel master accountable. This master, well, he may think he has the last word, but Paul says to those slaves, he does not have the last word. Also, Paul reminds these slaves that there's no favoritism with God. He doesn't hold the master in higher esteem than he does the slave. Paul wrote in Colossians 3.11, we looked at these verses in the past. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. People may view a slave as inferior, but God does not. Genesis 1.27 reminds us that all people are created in the image of God. And so Paul addresses these slaves as fellow image bearers. What can we learn from this passage that can be applied in today's world? First, employees should work diligently. Employees should work diligently as if serving Christ. This means that employees should not justify poor work because the boss is difficult or because the boss is unfair. Laziness and goofing off at work, that's unacceptable. Dishonesty and insubordination, these aren't the marks of a Christian employee. Just because you don't like your boss doesn't mean that you do as little as possible at work. 
So give your all at work. Give your all, put your heart into what you're doing, remembering that when you do, you're serving the King of Kings. You're serving the Lord of Lords. And if you're a student in school, children, teenagers, if you're still in school, you wanna, you wanna go at your schoolwork in the same manner. Give your all when you work on your schoolwork. You're serving Christ when you do. I heard the story of a fellow named Stevie, and, and Stevie was talking to one of his friends, and, and he said, you know, I was pretty proud because I got a really good reference from, from my last employer. But the reference wasn't quite as good as Stevie thought it was. Now, Stevie told his friend, I got this, this great reference, and his friend said, well, well tell me. Uh, tell me what it said. And so he told his friend, Juan, it said, if you get Stevie to work for you, you'll be really lucky. It's not exactly the kind of reference that we're looking for, is it? Not exactly. You see, if we belong to Christ, employers shouldn't feel really lucky if we actually do something. If we belong to Christ, employers should feel blessed because we work with all of our hearts. Because we, we pour our, our heart and our soul into the work that we've been called to do. Second, you should work the same way when the boss is watching and when the boss is not watching. Because ultimately, friends, the boss is always watching. That's what Paul's saying here. As soon as the boss, boss walks away, don't pull out your phone and waste 30 minutes. Give all your effort, whether your boss is, is with you or not. If you're a child or a teenager, do your work at school the same when your teacher's watching and when she's not. But put, put your heart and your soul into what you're doing. Work hard either way. Third, our highest duty, as we've already mentioned, is to God. Our highest duty is to God. This means that if an employer requires something that's unethical or that opposes God's word, we shouldn't follow that. We ultimately obey God. So we've seen from Paul's guidelines for slaves and masters that we are called to be faithful employees. Let's consider principles for employers from this passage. Number two, be a fair and just boss. Be a fair and just boss. Paul calls masters to treat their slaves justly and fairly. Now in the Roman world, as we've already said, slaves had no rights. But Paul wants masters to understand they do have responsibility toward their slaves. The Greek philosopher Aristotle said that it was improper to speak of injustice toward one's property. Slaves were viewed as one's property. Thus, to speak in the category of justice regarding a slave simply didn't apply from, from a Greco-Roman perspective. But Paul's instructions to masters destroys that mindset, that idea. Paul urges justice and fairness. And Paul's teachings would have been extraordinary in his time. Paul reminded these masters that they too have a master in heaven. In verse 25, remember Paul that said, Paul said that God shows no favoritism. And so he wants these earthly masters to remember that they will answer to the master. Now, let's think about how this uh, applies in our day. First, employers should treat employees with fairness and justice. Treat employees with respect. Employers should compensate employees with a fair wage. 
the drive to make more and more and more can lead to to crossing the line of fairness and justice. And employers need to to think through that, need to, to, to consider if they're being right with their employees. Treating, them, treating an employee with, with condescension and with disrespect just because you have power over them, that's not the way a Christian behaves. The bottom line is that employers, and these words are going to sound familiar, should treat employees as they themselves would want to be treated. Years ago, before the, the birth of my oldest daughter, Kate, my wife was an assistant to a stockbroker at a bank, and he was a deacon in the church that, that we were a part of at that time, a good man, a godly man, an incredibly kind to her, great to work for. But a few weeks after Kate was born, Kate was screaming and crying, and Jennifer looked at me. She was sleepy and worn and tired, and she said, I think I want my old boss back. <laughs> and she didn't mean it, but her new boss, Kate, had been a little more demanding than, than her former boss. But I wonder if you're in the position of being a boss, what would your employees say about you? Would they characterize you as kind and fair? Would they characterize you as someone who, who's interested in their welfare, not just the bottom line? Because as believers, that's the kind of, a, uh, of, of responsibility that we have if we have the, the role of the responsibilities uh, of being in leadership. If you have authority over employees, make sure you remember to honor Christ. Second, employers, bear in mind that you answer to God. You answer to God. You aren't the ultimate authority. You may have the money, You may have the power, but you don't have the final word. You too answer to a master. You too answer to the king of kings. And so you exercise your authority with that in mind. Now, we've considered some principles from this passage that shape our understanding of relationships within the workplace. Now, Let's take a a bit of time to consider the issue of slavery and the Bible. This past week, I was listening to a lecture on American history from a professor at George Washington University, and she was just talking about the dynamics that that led to the Civil War. And she just nonchalantly said in the midst of, of her lecture that the Bible supports slavery. That was a part of what was happening in the South. Is that a true statement? Does the Bible support slavery? Is the Bible a pro-slavery document? Well, I want to give you several reasons today to, to reject the idea that the Bible is a pro-slavery document. As we begin as, in thinking about the Bible and slavery, first we need to remember that the culture that we live in was incredibly different from the culture that Paul lived in. It's sort of like this. If you, if you drink the water around here, you you don't think the water has any taste, but if you go somewhere else, you, you get a drink of the water and you go, this water tastes kind of strange because you get so used to, to, to what you know that, that something else tastes. Well, remember, this is something that's happening 2,000 years ago in a culture completely different from our own. So when we read this, it does seem kind of strange, but, but we need to bear that in mind in this discussion Slavery was universally accepted in the Roman world with more than half of of the the people of the Roman world being slaves. Second, there are some significant differences between American slavery and slavery in ancient times. In the first story of slavery in the Bible, Sarah, you remember Sarah, Abraham's wife, 
she found herself barren and she gave her slave girl, Hagar, to Abraham that he might bear a child through Hagar. Now, when she conceived, Sarah became angry toward her. She resented her and she sent Hagar away. But when Hagar was sent away, God appeared to her and he promised her that he was with her, that he would be with her son. In fact, when Hagar sees God, she becomes the first person in the Bible to name God. She calls him the God who sees. Later, when Sarah's son, Isaac, is born, Sarah, Sarah becomes pregnant and, and she has a son. Hagar has come back and she begins to resent Hagar again. And once again, Hagar is sent away, but God shows special concern for this slave girl and for her son, Ishmael. We don't know all of the details about Hagar's life. How did she come to be uh, in Abraham's uh, household? We do know that being a part of his household in those days might have been preferable to being in the ancient world unprotected and unprovided for. Hagar's story is the first slave narrative of the Bible, but it is one of many. Interestingly, Abraham's great-grandson, his great-grandson Joseph, was sold into slavery in Egypt by a wicked act of his brothers. Joseph, by, by God's providence, he rose and, and became a leader in the Egyptian government. So when we think about Hagar's story and when we think about Joseph's story, we notice some clear distinctions between slavery as it was practiced here in America and slavery as it was practiced in the ancient world. First, slavery wasn't associated with racial hierarchy. Hagar was an Egyptian girl saving, uh, serving Hebrews. Joseph was a Hebrew serving Egyptians. Second, it was common for people to sell themselves as slaves during this time period. It was a form of employment that was often preferable to poverty. And third, many slaves in the ancient world would face terrible abuse like we think of when we think of American slavery. But there were also many who, who found gainful employment and, and who thrived and even were able to, to rise out of slavery, as you see in Joseph's story. Now, sometime after Joseph's death, God's people, the Israelites, would become slaves in Egypt. And they would endure slavery for year after year after year. And finally, God said, that is enough. And he brought judgment down upon the Egyptian people. He sent his death angel and every firstborn in Egypt died facing the judgment of God because of the wickedness of enslaving the, the, the Israelite people. A few other comments about the differences between American slavery and slavery in the ancient world. In the ancient world, many slaves were treated poorly, but there are many examples of, of Roman masters displaying great kindness toward their slaves. You can see that in Luke chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10, you see a Roman centurion showing great concern for one of his slaves who was very ill. He sought out Jesus to, to come and to heal his slave. Also, many slaves lived normal lives and, and were compensated with some being able to purchase the release. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, Paul encouraged slaves who were able to purchase the relief, uh, release to do so. 
So in the ancient world, slaves could, could hold a variety of positions. Some were teachers, some were doctors. Third, in the Old Testament, we see guidelines enacted to protect slaves. First, catching slaves or enslaving others was prohibited. I've given you, we won't look at all the scriptures because of time, but in the bulletin you can find references to these. Many protections were given for slaves in the book of Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Scripture regularly invites us to see the world through the eyes of those who were enslaved. As we've already mentioned this morning, through the eyes of Hagar through the eyes of Joseph, through the, through the eyes of his people who had been enslaved in Egypt. Fourth, in Paul's letter to Philemon, we see Paul's deep concern for Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave who had belonged to a man named Philemon. Philemon was a prominent member of the church at Colossae, the church that this letter was written to. In fact, the church met in his home. When Paul sent this letter to the Colossians, he also sent Onesimus back to his master, Philemon, along with the letter of Philemon, which we see uh, in our scriptures. Some have argued that, that Paul's writings affirm slavery, that this letter affirms slavery. But what we really see is a deep concern for Onesimus. And it can hardly be called an endorsement of slavery. According to Roman law, Philemon had the right to brand Onesimus when he got him back. He had the right to break his joints. He had the right to, to enact all sorts of cruel punishments. But notice what Paul says. He urges Philemon to receive this escaped slave back with kindness, with tenderness. Not to give him all that the law would permit. In Philemon 10, Paul calls Onesimus not a slave, but a son. In Philemon 12, Paul speaks of Onesimus as warmly as he speaks of any other person in the New Testament. He says that in sending Onesimus back, he sends his very own heart. Paul said in Philemon 16 that he longed for Onesimus to stay with him, but was returning him not as a slave, but as a dearly loved brother. And then he encourages Philemon to treat Onesimus as he would treat Paul himself. So Paul offers to be responsible for anything that Onesimus owed Philemon. In Philemon 21, this is interesting, Paul encourages Philemon to do even more than Paul had asked. Now, how could he do even more? One wonders if this wasn't Paul's way of saying to Philemon, why don't you release Onesimus? Why don't you do even more? Don't receive him as a slave, but as a brother. Why don't you go beyond that? Why don't you do even more? Paul also addressed this letter not just to Philemon, but to others in the church so that his treatment of Onesimus was a matter of public record. He, he was bringing accountability to bear. Sixth, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul includes slave trading among a list of sinful and evil acts. The practice that American slavery was built upon clearly is prohibited in Scripture. Paul was, was building upon Exodus 21.16, which prohibited catching slaves or enslaving people. In fact, it was a capital crime in the Old Testament. Any attempt to justify the transatlantic slave trade using the Bible are blown out of the water by Paul's writing here to Timothy. Now, I want us to think together about one final question before we leave this topic. Why didn't Paul just outlaw slavery among Christians? Why didn't Paul just outright say it? It's important to remember that Christianity is not 
a revolutionary religion. Christianity doesn't seek to overthrow governments. Slavery was completely ingrained in the ancient world. And, and to make that your focus would be to overthrow and, and, and to bring revolution to the society and the culture that, that you lived in. But the Christian faith never seeks revolution. If you read the New Testament, you don't see that. You see submit to government leaders. You see that we're supposed to, to follow what, what our leaders say. And so Paul doesn't say that. But what the New Testament does do is by its teachings, it subverts or undermines slavery. So instead of coming out right and outlawing slavery, as one author put it, the New Testament cuts the legs out from under slavery. So instead of embracing revolutionary power, Christianity embraces transforming power. Ultimately, the principles of Christianity subvert. They overturn slavery. So with the rejection of superiority and and exploitation, and with the emphasis on equality among all who are in Christ, the New Testament created the forces that led to the abolition of slavery. Because of time, I'll mention just a few historical examples, but there are countless examples. As soon as Christians had any kind of political influence in the Roman Empire in the fourth century, you had Gregory of Nyssa, a theologian and leader in the church, writing this, if a man makes that which truly belongs to God his own private property by allotting himself sovereignty over his own people and thinks himself the master of men and women, what could follow but an arrogance exceeding all nature from the one who sees himself as something other than the ones who are ruled? He, he went on to confront the, the sale of slaves. And he said this, how many obols or how much money for the image of God? In the early 5th century, Basil of Caesarea, a, a leader of the church, wrote against the sexual exploitation of slaves. And he paved the way for a law that, that, that was issued by the Eastern Empire in four. Uh, Eastern Emperor in 428. This law prohibited the sexual exploitation of, of slaves. Writing about this law, one historian said, the translation of Christian ideology into statutory law could hardly be clear. In other words, this historian argued that this Roman law against the sexual abuse of slaves over 1,500 years ago was the outworking of Christianity's influence in the Roman Empire. By the 7th century, Christian abolition grew more widespread as Europe became Christianized, and for a period of time, slavery was virtually eliminated. Well, the practice crept back into Western culture in the 16th century during the European um, colonialism. And during this period, Christianity's influence in England had waned. The, the, the churches had very low attendance in this time period. The preaching was characterized as, as being very poor. And at the beginning of the 19th century, a man named Will, William Wilberforce uh, became a leader in, in England. In fact, he was elected to the House of Commons in 1780, and he became a born-again Christian, a, an evangelical Christian four years later in 1784. And following his conversion, Wilberforce worked diligently to abolish slavery in Egypt. You should, you should read his story. It's, it's a powerful story. In fact, Wilberforce felt that God had called him to put an end to the slave trade in England. And working with others, 
by God's grace, Wilberforce did just that. Now, in 19th century America, unfortunately, there were many Christians and even pastors who argued that slavery was biblically permissible. On the other hand, there were many Christians in 19th century America who worked tirelessly for the abolition of slavery. For example, Harriet Beecher Stowe, a white Christian lady, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852, and this book was a, an, just an absolute bestseller. It, it, they, they printed copy after copy after copy, and it wasn't a perfect book, it, but it compellingly presented the evils of slavery. And that book was used to profoundly shape our nation's attitudes towards slavery and African Americans. And this is what Stowe said of her book. I wrote what I did because as a woman, as a mother, I was oppressed and brokenhearted with the sorrows and injustice I saw because as a Christian, I felt the dishonor to Christianity because as a lover of my country, I trembled at the coming day of wrath. She recognized that God would bring justice because of the injustice that had been inflicted upon those in slavery. I could give more examples, but let it be clear where the principles of scripture shape a culture. Slavery will not endure. It cannot for for biblical principles eliminate that possibility. Is Christianity a pro-slavery religion? Is the Bible a pro-slavery document? The answer is no, it is a thousand times no. When you read that accusation online or a a friend of uh, of your sis, I don't know why you're Christian, (laughs) just look at all the Bible, it supports slavery. How can you be a believer? How how can you follow that? Do you you drink the Kool-Aid? Or or maybe you're in class and you hear a college professor say just just nonchalantly, the Bible supports slavery. Look further. Look further. Investigate. Wherever Christianity's influence has been felt, slavery has not stood. So we've seen that the teachings of Scripture undermine slavery. Let's get back to this idea of our work. Let's suppose that you work in the house cleaning department in a hospital. It may seem that you are completely unappreciated in the work that you do. The doctors get all the accolades and the praise that the nurses as well. But it seems that you're never appreciated for the work that you do. Often faithful service is overlooked in the workplace. But imagine for a moment if the job that you do wasn't done. What would happen in a hospital if there were no housekeepers? Well, quickly. Things would become an absolute mess. And if a hospital isn't clean, a hospital isn't safe. So in reality, your job really matters. Even more, the Lord says that all of our work, whether it is the doctors, the nurse, the kitchen employee, the housekeepers, the groundkeeper, all of our work, whatever it is, should be done as if to the Lord himself. So your work matters, even if it seems small to you or insignificant. Be a great employee, for you are serving Christ. Be a great employer, for you too serve Christ and answer to Him. Children and students, your efforts in school matter. When you do your schoolwork, you're serving Jesus. Imagine what a difference it could make if all of us understood our jobs to be a place where we serve the King of Kings. If we could all get that vision of our work, 
Oh, wouldn't we work with all of our hearts in whatever job we had? Wouldn't we want to bring our best to, to the Lord Jesus? Well, friends, Scripture teaches us that that's the reality of it. Whatever you do, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. So serve Christ in your work. What changes do you need to make as you reflect on this passage? Do you need to be a better employee? Do you need to start showing up to work on time? Or do you need to to work with all of your heart and quit wasting time on Snapchat or Facebook or whatever it is? Children and teens, do you need to be a better student? Put more effort into your work at school. Do you need to recalibrate and recognize that you're working for Jesus? As an employer, do you need to make changes to be more fair? Are you compensating employees fairly or does your greed rule the day? Do you demonstrate Christ-like concern for the, for the good of the folks who work for you? Ask the Lord to help you be the kind of employee, the kind of employer that he wants you to be. He'll help you. He'll help you change. As you read his word and study his word and try to, to live that out, he'll help you. The Bible says that apart from Christ, that every single one of us is a slave, a slave to sin. And the reality is that apart from someone coming to rescue us, we have no hope of being free. But guess what? God didn't just rescue his people from the land of Egypt. No, he came to rescue his people from the bondage of sin. And friends, I have the best news for you this morning, the best news in all of the world, and that is that God loved you so much that he sent his son to rescue you from bondage, the bondage that you know that that sin brings. You see, God loved you so much that his son came and died on a cross and he made a way so that your sin could be forgiven, so that the penalty that you deserve for your sin and that I deserve for, for my sin We don't have to face it. He put that penalty upon his son. But not only that, the power of sin, we don't have to live under the power of sin any longer. Sin doesn't have to control us any longer. When we turn from our sin and we put our faith in Jesus, God saves us and he begins to change us. So I ask you this morning, friend, have you been set free from sin? Why would you want to go on enslaved by by your sinful nature? When God has offered you the the promise of setting you free, of giving you life and joy for all eternity, why would you want to go on in bondage tied up? If you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus, God is saying to you, come, come and be set free. Let the bonds be loosed. If you're here, and you've never trusted in Christ, in just a moment, we'll stand and sing. When we do, I'll be at the front. Brother Ralph Puerto will be at the front. And we would love nothing more than to tell you and talk to you about how you can be set free, how you can know Jesus, and how you can have the promise of eternal life. So when we stand and sing, as soon as we do, if that's you, if you want to know more about how to, how to know Jesus, how to be free, you come. You come. Let's pray together.